Hello, Tim Bellpot listener. I just wanted to throw out a bit of a disclaimer that these early episodes, we were still figuring it out, and we got better in pretty much every way. Definitely audio, storytelling, joke telling, research. So, um, you know, maybe start with episode 20. But if you still want to see what the growing process was like for us, continue listening to these early ones because I could see all that's fun. But um, just know it gets better. Hi guys, I just wanted to let you know that since the last disclaimer, we've gotten so much better at making disclaimers. Like for example, um, this one has lasers. This one has some dinosaurs. I even talk like a robot in this one. And if you want to listen to an episode like without any disclaimers, I would say um, maybe like 27, I think Bruiser Brody, I think that was like the first episode where we figured out kind of, oh, this is what we do. So yeah, no disclaimers on that one. Um, I mean, you can listen to this old ass episode. I wouldn't, you know, and I fucking wrote it and edited it and researched it. And All right, well, uh, enjoy this episode. What I'd like to have right now is all you Wes Anderson-loving, fedora-wearing, Miyazaki-worshipping sweat hogs to quiet down so we can do a podcast right about now. What I'd like to have right now, (laughs) if it's okay with you guys, is for all you fat, I don't mean that, out of shape, I don't mean that either, sweat hogs. I just said that. (sighs) (laughs) to please be quiet while i show you how a real podcast is hosted now hit my music Uh, do i have to do one yeah yeah do one okay what i would like to have right now (laughs) is more money in my bank account Someone to uh, love me again. Oh. Uh, <laughs> a grandma that's alive. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, it was a bad year. Okay, oh. it was a bad. It was a bad end that of twenty eighteen. Year. That was new last year. year. New year, new me. New year. Sweat hogs. <laughs> new yeah, year, okay. new me. Sweat hogs. Sweat hogs. We all said it. We all said it. I guess. Welcome to Tim Bell Pod. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Nick Alexander. I'm here with Michael Loving. We're here in the cave that Manning built with the Man Scout. Oh. I was doing Give It To Me, Baby. I, was, uh, I wasn't yeah. doing anything religious but, uh, for you. You were wanting like, crowd stuff, so I did a little... Uh, I was like, Give It To Me, Baby. That's what I was doing. Okay. That's what I was doing. All right. <laughs> Let me say up front that I think whoever your favorite sports team is is not very good. Oh. oh, in fact, I think whoever your favorite sports team's rival is, is better than your favorite sports team. <laughs> oh, dude, really? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm going full hill. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> because today we are talking about one of, if not the greatest hill of all time. A guy that did it all from NWA in Japan to being the first person in both DX and NWO. Boom. Today we are talking about the great, ravishing Rick Rude. Oh, man. So, for part one, we are covering Rick's beginnings and his first big WWF run, which I assume is what everyone knows him from. Let's get into it. Richard Erwin Rude, R-O-O-D was born December 7th, 1958, in St. Peter, Minnesota. Oh. Rick attended Robbinsdale High School in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. And not only did Vern Gagne go to high school there, some of Rick's classmates include the Z-Man Tom Zink, who wrestled in NWA, WWF, All Japan, WCW, wow. Dean Peters, who some of you may know as WWF's Battle Cat, 
John Nord, who was the Viking, Smash from Demolitions, Nikita Koloff, his best friend, Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, and to add to it, across town, Animal and Hawk, the Road Warriors. Oh, Holy shit. I feel to, like you just made up a bunch of stuff. To be fair, there was only one high school in all of Minnesota. Oh, so that's why point. everybody <laughs> happened to come from Robbinsdale High School. They have one big mall and one big high school. <laughs> <laughs> so Rick worked as a bouncer at Grandma B's with the Road Warriors and Smash. Everyone you named in the high school. Everyone you named in the <laughs> high school because there was only one bar in Minnesota too. So. <laughs> hey, once we're done with math class, you want to go to the one bar we get drunk <laughs> at? Sure. I mean, yeah, Grandma B's. That was the or all those wrestlers they were bouncers at, and they used to have contests of throwing guys out who could throw the guy the furthest. <laughs> Just like Fresh Prince. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they were all trying to do the Uncle Phil challenge. Apparently, when Hogan was in AWA, sometimes he'd stop by and he'd play bass guitar with a band who was there. That sounds made up too. Well, no, what's funny is I remember my high school, not my high school, my my college track coach telling me a story about how he knew, because my college track coach hated the fact that I loved professional wrestling. <laughs> Actually, he hated the fact that I loved anything, and he wanted to squash it. And Just he, be better like me. He, he Yeah, he was telling me about, like, you know, Hulk Hogan. I have a friend that grew up in Florida. And he knew Hulk Hogan back when he was in a band and how he used to just smoke a bunch of dope. What do you think of him now? <laughs> and I go, if anything, I think he's cooler now. And if that's the most derogatory thing you yeah, have to say wow. about Hulk Hogan, wait another decade <laughs> and then he'll, and he'll do it himself. So Rick also went to Anoka Ramsey Community College to get a degree in physical education, but Rick would never actually use his degree, and I think that technically makes him a millennial. So, before training in pro wrestling, Rick was a boxer. He was also a pretty badass arm wrestler. And just his hand grip and his forearm strength along is legendary. Rick even finished sixth in the world championship in the lightweight division in 83 for arm wrestling. And being such a good arm wrestler got him thinking, wow, what if I also wrestled with my feet and stuff? So Rude and some of his Robbinsdale classmates got trained to be pro wrestlers. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was going to be an over-the-top, but then Stallone was so scared that he was like, nah, I don't want to be in here with this I, guy. I thought you were about to go into like a fetish porn thing, wrestling with my feet. <laughs> feet. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's like a big thing that I didn't realize was creeping up in porn at all. <laughs> oh, the feet thing? Yeah, the feet. Huge, huge. It's, it's, it's creeping into regular mainstream. I know, it's right? like, I just want a normal missionary, and you're throwing feet in this. Yeah, it's, whatever. Feet and stepsisters. It... <laughs> And for some reason, normal missionary porn is creepier than feet, I think. It is now. I want to see two people passionately make love and have eye contact. Yeah, I just want a nice wide shot. I want to see all facials here. That's all That's all I really I want. I want to see communication of emotions and feelings. Yeah. Is that too much? And a shitload of dirty talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah gosh, so much. We are off. <laughs> no, so, I think we're on talking because we're talking about Rick Rude, okay? Like I think Rick Rude, Rick, Rick Rude would Lots appreciate of doing it. Rick Rude, he would appreciate exactly what we're doing right now. So, now, Kurt Hitting was trained by his dad, Larry the Axe, rest in peace. But all the other guys I mentioned are trained by Eddie Sharkey. Eddie was a former AWA wrestler who has a laundry list of great wrestlers he trained. Just to name some, Austin Aries, Bob Backlund, Medusa, X-Pac, Jerry Lynn, Eric Rowan, and Jesse Nobody Ventra. That is, a, that is some variety. I like yeah, that. No. I love that eclectic nature about all that. But you know what? Uh, when Eddie Sharkey finds uh, a new person who he thinks he could possibly train, um, he always tells him, even with the laundry list of talent that he's trained, every time he sees somebody new come up who he thinks he can train, he's always like, you could be the next one, two, three kid. Like, <laughs> that's the one that is like the that's apple of his, his eye. That's stuck in his head. I like, mean, he had a good career. That's he did, but I just like if I don't think he's ever walked up and be like, "You could be the next Jesse the Body Ventura." <laughs> like that's what I would want. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. run a state, lose right. your mind. How many people have a type of heat named after them? Yeah, that's nah, that's true. I've, I've I mean, had I, Spock heat for a while. I now. hated, yeah, I hated him. I've always liked him. After training, Rick would start wrestling under the real spelling of his name, and he was also a face. There are conflicting reports over what year Rick's first official matches are, 
But in a 1983 phone interview with Bill Apter, I listened to with my own earballs, Rick Rude said that after training, he got sent up to Vancouver for his first matches, breaking into the business in the summer of 81. Mm. Rick even said that he didn't 100% remember, but I'm going to side with him, I guess. Although most people say he broke into wrestling in 82. I say time is a social construct used to control us while our rich masters travel the world. I mean, it's true, but I don't think that applies here. Yeah. Well, and have you guys seen footage of him in Vancouver? No. I, I in prep for this podcast, I watched a little bit of it, and it is odd because he <laughs> I did not expect that word. Yeah, it is clearly his first year. Uh, very clearly, because I mean, all the footage I've ever seen of Rick Rude is obviously him in his prime or yeah. his run in WWF or WCW or anything of that sort. So to see somebody who I've always seen as extremely technically proficient in the first year of his career with no mustache, it is is just as jarring as when I was eight years old and my dad, who had a mustache, for my entire life that I could remember at eight years old, my dad just decided, I'm going to shave my mustache off one day, and my son's not going to get weirded out by that. It's going to be fine. And that's going to be fine. And that's basically what it's like for seeing Rick Rude <laughs> wrestle in Va- Vancouver. After working in Vancouver's NWA All-Star Wrestling, he competed for Georgia Championship Wrestling in Mid-Atlantic with his pals, the Road Warriors, before joining Bill Watson Mid-South. Mid-South, brother. Rude lost his TV debut against Joe LeDuc on November 6th, 1982 on an episode of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Around this time, he also would make his debut in WCCW, losing a match against Kamala. But this is well before his actual WCCW run, which we'll get into later. Rick was 6'3", and at one point in his career, I think he bulked up to about 250. But at the start of his career, he was always very in shape. He was very slim and toned. I think a good comparison to someone today is Rick is a slightly more jacked and taller Finn Balor. But Rick Rude was entering an era of pro wrestling where wrestlers were more accepted if they were pure fat as long as they were 300 pounds. That's kind of like the theory of uh, in Japan for a while, like we just want you big. We don't care if you're jacked or not. We just yeah, want yeah. you to be 260, 250. I remember yeah. that it's being like a Kibashi thing. And then they were they weren't like fat, but they were just big hulking men. Yeah. With that, it took a minute before Rick found a promoter that actually believed in him. Apparently, Bill Watts from Mid South didn't see Rick as anything more than a job guy. However, Jerry Jarrett of Continental Wrestling Association in Memphis thought just the opposite. And it's Jerry Jarrett who gets the credit for the new and improved Ravishing Rick Rude when he went to Memphis January of 84. And from this point on, Rick would be a career hill. Well, and here's the thing. I saw Rick Rude's TV debut in Memphis. And he comes out and he's being hyped up. Like, you have this new sex symbol. And obviously the, the fabulous ones are a big deal. And so he's going to be the heel version of that. And then he has a TV match, and it is garbage. It is. <laughs> is that when he looks like the Chippendales? Yeah, yeah. Yes. He's in the Saturday Night Live skit with Chris Farley? Yeah. Like he's got like a whole <laughs> Chippendales outfit, and like he, he has the look, but God, is he not good in the ring. It's what, yeah, that, so Rick developed that reputation. For years, he had this like stigma on him of, yeah, Rick is a good-looking guy, but he can't work. But here's, but, but here's, then later he could. You know? No, no, but it's in Memphis where he learns how because uh, his debut happened January 24th, 1984 is the date that I have. I don't know if that's when yeah. the TV aired or when it was right. recorded, but that's what the listing that I have. But then you see matches of him in July and he's wrestling Lawler and they're good matches. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's wrestling Macho Man in September of 84. Same year, nine months later, and he is a completely so different he's wrestler. Like he's j- like like know. he is light years. And that's the one of the things about Memphis is you know you talk about in stand up like if you want to get good you go to New York. Well, during the <laughs> 80s, if you wanted to get good as a wrestler, you go to Memphis yeah. because you're wrestling every single night, and then you got TV and you learn how to work angles and stuff like that. And I think a person you have to contribute to probably bringing Rude along. Because he's made all these different stops in all these different territories, and he's just as bad at his debut in Memphis as he was in the little bit that I saw of him in Vancouver. So obviously, I nobody took him aside to teach him like they did in Memphis. And I gotta give credit 
to probably Austin Idol being that guy. Because the only thing I can look for in matches between the time that he was wrestling Jerry Lawler and all these main events and these matches were really good and incredible, the only person he was feuding with and wrestling with on a regular basis was Austin Idol. Yeah, that was a good little bit. And and I got to believe that Austin Idol was the guy that was helping him along. And, you know, Austin, like, wasn't, like, you know, as a highly technical wrestler, but, you know, obviously probably had a lot of patience. And, that, and that's all you really need when you're a young wrestler, somebody that has patience with you and is trying to teach you and, and, and work with you. And, like, all right, well, this didn't go well, but, like, next time let's do this. And right. somebody, somebody just has time for you. And that's all you're looking for is for somebody to give you a chance. And I could see how Bill Watts is like, nah, screw this guy. He's fresh out of the package. And someone like Austin Idol, who's a very nice kind individual just having the patience and the time to work with somebody like rick rude and make him the superstar that he was because he like went, you said when you gotta do it every single day then you got time to work on something every single day and make something of it exactly he was managed by jimmy hart would being on the road with him help or was jimmy also new enough in wrestling where they'd probably cancel each other out no jimmy had <clears throat> been around but i mean jimmy's gonna help you with like, hey, baby, be nice to this person, or like, okay. or like, like or this, this is where you stay. I think the, he had you know. so much background stuff that he was having and on, and also too, like, you know, Rude was known for having good promos, so obviously he, they didn't have a lot of faith in him as a talker at this time. So yeah. I, I would probably credit maybe Jimmy helping him with his promos very early on, but he found his way at the top of the card with with Jerry Lawler very quickly. So and there's even like a really legendary match where Rude's valet Angel. Like, hits Jerry Lawler mm-hmm. with a chair, and then he punches a woman in Memphis, oh, and people yeah. cheer, and then gives her a pile driver at one point in time. Like, like he had developed enough heat and, and wrestled good enough to, to make all that work. And like I said, he was having matches with Macho Man in September of 84, and keeping up. Yep. And at this time, Macho Man in 84, like, he was that, probably the hottest free agent in, in wrestling. Like, there's a story of Macho Man when people would send their tapes in to get a job with WWF, you know, like here's a match uh, that I had with in somewhere. And like, it'd be somebody just trying to get a job. It'd be random wrestler a, Mm. and the person that that person would be wrestling would be macho man. And then somebody else would send another tape in, and then it'd be Macho Man. Macho Man. And all of a sudden, people in the office are like, Oh, that, why do you look so good? Because of. Because everybody keeps sending in this ma- the matches they have with Macho Man. That's awesome. They show how good they are. Yeah. Maybe we should hire Randy Savage. <laughs> like, I didn't send nothing in, brother. That, that, was, that was kind of the urban legend around him for a while, and he was hell bent on getting on the national stage. So, like, wrestling Macho Man in 84. And keeping up with them was uh, definitely a tall task. Rude's sexy man, man's man gimmick was pushed to the edges. There's uh, some YouTube promos where he's just like going almost like full misogynist chauvinist. Oh yeah, just Listen, like... there was one one rule in Memphis: <laughs> just make him mad. Yeah, and it, that, that that did it. It was the whole. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know what else a woman can do better than have kids because of her vagina. But I mean, it was just rude going maximum all just out. It's full, pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Tilt. And also, he had some pretty famous tag team partners. He teamed with King Kong Bundy, Jim the Anvil, Neidhart. Yeah, they were the first family, I think. Well. Well, I mean, everybody was the first okay. family. Anybody that was a heel was the first family. <laughs> Is that what? Yeah, I don't Lance know Memphis Ru- stuff too well. Lance Russell might have been a member <laughs> of the first family a short period of time. I so. need a boat up on my Memphis. Another quick story that I got from George South uh, during Rick Rude's time in Memphis. And I'm surprised that this happened and nobody died because of it. <laughs> during that time, there was kind of a working relationship with Memphis and Georgia Championship Wrestling. Because Jerry Lawler would go down there and, and the story goes, that's... That's how Jerry Lawler got the crown and the cape for, you know, the Bobby Shane game. And that's how, like, uh, Piper and Lawler wrestled the Georgia Championship Wrestling. There was this working relationship where Lawler would go down. Or it might have been, like, the time that Rude was knocking around in Georgia Championship Wrestling that we mentioned earlier. But there was a time when Rude was in Memphis and George was doing, George South was doing jobs in Georgia. And Rick Rude drove all the way down from Memphis to Georgia Championship Wrestling in Atlanta. And Rude's like, I'm here. And Ole Anderson, who was the booker of Georgia Championship Wrestling, looked right at Rude and goes, you're not booked. Uh-huh. And Rude's like, oh, okay. And then just turned around and left. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and I would inquire some more. Like, you sure? Yeah. And he just, <laughs> just said, you're not booked. Okay. Oh. And he just drove right back to Memphis <laughs> immediately after. I would maybe try a bit more. Yeah. But 
knowing what we know about Rick Rude and his temper, <laughs> surprised nobody died because of that. <laughs> All right, well, after a pretty successful run in CWA, Rick Rude was starting to become a bit of a mover and shaker in the business. He went to Championship Wrestling of Florida in December of 84, where he was managed by Percy Pringle, or Paul Bearer, if you're a fucking Mark. Percivus Pringle is, is her. I was like, wow, they really went all out with it. Whenever we do cover Paul Bear, I am so pumped because Percy is very fun to watch. He could cut a promo and he was a great sleazeball, which was just oh, uh, yeah. this perfect pairing with Rick Rude. So in Florida, almost right away, he'd win the NWA Florida Southern Heavyweight Championship in January 16th of 85, beating Pez the Dispenser Watley. That's not his real name. Uh, <laughs> it should be. He'd hang on to it for about three months before losing it to CaulifloweralleyClub.org president Brian Blair in April of 85. He'd then partner with Jesse Barr. He won the NWA Florida United States Tag Team Championship April 16th of 85 before Billy Jack Haynes and Wahoo McDaniel took it from him in July. If there is one good thing that came from the territory shutting down, it's that belt names aren't so fucking long anymore. No one needs to win the NWA United States North Carolina Mecklenburg County International Junior Tag Team titles. Inhale. Breathe. Rick would get his second run with the Florida Heavyweight Championship July 20th of 85 when he beat Mike Graham in the finals of the Southern Title Tournament. He held that belt until October 2nd of that year where he dropped it back to Wahoo McDaniel, who was the booker of Florida. Real convenient that the guy booking the territory keeps winning all the belts. Real convenient. That this, doesn't happen at you all. You can count on them. <laughs> That's the problem. Like, I, I will be a click apologist. I will be a Dusty Rhodes apologist. And if I got to be a Wahoo McDaniel apologist, I will. All right? Like, you, I didn't you know can, you were a Dusty Rhodes. Whatever, Dusty Rhodes. We'll you, talk about that best later. Best apologize for the American dream, Dusty yeah, Rhodes. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, I mean, everybody always like, oh, why has he got to put himself over? Because he's the booker and he knows he's going to be there tomorrow. <laughs> when people are just leaving at you left and right, That's who are you going to count on? That's a good point. October 18th of 85, Rude and Percy would take their talent to world-class brother. Rick would make his debut beating Rick McCord with his Rude Awakening, which at the time was a DDT. Oh, and uh, he opened with Smooth Operator as his interest music, yeah. which is just perfect because it opens up with like, oh, Ricky, why are you so ravishing? And then Smooth Operator kicks in. I mean, if that's not perfect, I don't know what is. On November 4th, Rick would win the NWA American Heavyweight Championship from Iceman King Parsons. But on February 20th of 86, while Rick was still champion, WCCW withdrew from NWA and changed its name to World Class Wrestling Association. The NWA American Championship was renamed to the WCWA Heavyweight Championship. And this wouldn't be the last time that something like that would happen to Rick Rude. He's involved in all these really weird timing issues with either belts or TV, which we'll touch on when we get to it. Rick would hang on to this belt until July of 86 when he lost it to gentleman Chris Adams. Mm. And it was in WCCW or WCWA, whatever, that Rick would meet the mustached Ultimate Warrior for the first time as he was wrestling then under the stupid, stupid name Dingo Warrior. <laughs> yeah. As, as one announcer said during the match, he works out twice a day to maintain that body. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all he does. That's all he does, by the way. In September 86, Rude went back to Charlotte and Jim Crockett Promotions, where he joined Raging Bull Manny Fernandez to become the awesome twosome with manager Paul Jones. All fantastic mustaches by all three men. And (laughs) fun inside fact, apparently somebody, I've never heard Manny say anything about it, and I don't think Paul Jones said anything about it, but I know George South has talked about it, that all three of those guys didn't like each other. Or at least... They didn't like riding with each other because when they would go to the towns, they would drive three different cars. <laughs> and that's a lot of disliking if all that money adding up and you're trying to make your money, you just want to burn that gas. So, so this thing is, like, I think they liked each other. They just didn't like traveling with each mm, other yeah. because I, they've, I don't think they've, they've really bad mouth either of each other. 
but like they never traveled together and so much in fact that the guys would like make fun of him and Dusty the boss would be like why the hell are you guys dra- traveling in three different cars just jump in the car together just you three like but one is in shotgun one of you can have the entire back why are you driving three different cars and like this is what we want to do on December 6th, 86, the awesome twosome would face the Rock and Roll Express for the NWA World Tag Team Championship. And after almost a 30-minute match, Robert Gibson rolls up Manny for a three count. However, the ref was ushering Ricky Morton out of the ring. And by the time he turned around, Rude had clotheslined Robert, who fell back, getting himself rolled up. Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez would win the NWA Tag Team Championship. During the post-match interview, Paul Jones, their manager, says, you'll never have to worry about Manny and Rick losing the belts. And technically, he was right. While still champions, Rick left Jim Crockett Promotions for the WWF April of 87. Jake, have you ever been in a situation where you or the promotion you're in... Are winning so much that... (laughs) (laughs) Winning a title belt at all? (laughs) I don't know. Nick, I want to know your perspective on it. You have just as much perspective as I do about it. So Hey, I I am 0-1 in pro wrestling. I am technically a jobber. Um, I do know about this particular situation through more of my background research from George South. He talks about that when Rude and Manny left with the belts, he references as he's never seen Dusty angrier than this moment right here. Of all the things that he's seen, like this is the angriest he's ever seen. Nothing, (laughs) nothing compares to, to this. And just the way they cover it up, they just take a non-title match and they air it on TV. It's such an easy <laughs> really? little fit. Yeah, they took a non-title match wow. for Rock and Roll 1, and like, oh, Rock and Roll Express wins it back. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it was just an easy fix like that. And then they said Rick left because he was injured. Yeah. yeah. That's how they covered it. So after joining WWF, Rick hopped onto the house show circuit and made his WWF debut on Superstars of Wrestling July 15th, 1987. Jerry Allen, Mario Mancini, and Ricky Hunter would face the Heenan family. Harley Race, Hercules with the mystery partner. Rick loved to debut as a mystery man. Before the match, Bobby tells everyone that it's Rick Rude who comes down to the ring. Kind of to not a good response. And he cuts his first ever WWF promo that's like insulting the crowd and taking off his robe. And you can tell he's still kind of like workshopping exactly, you know, the cadence and everything. Mm-hmm. Rick would win the match for the Heenan family with a slingshot suplex. I assume because he couldn't use the Rude Awakening DDT since Jake Roberts was using the DDT at the time. I, I was just weirded out. Like, his debut was in a six-man jobber squash. It was just like, wh- what? Well, that's the whole thing. It's just just throw the hill with Bobby Heenan yeah, and he's a yeah, hill. Yeah, you just know? do it and, immediately. And, you know, that was the logic, I guess, for putting him with the Heenan family, you're, if you're bringing in someone you want to get over as a mega hill, boom, he's a supervillain with Heenan. But Rick did not love working with Bobby because he thought Bobby stole his heat. Rick was a great talker, a heat magnet, and they put him with the only guy besides maybe Piper who could outshine him in both. But that's just like the way Vince ha- had it in his head. He's like, every heel needs a manager, you know, and every babyface has to have this and yeah, these, these certain things and these are... The parameters in which they will be, yeah. and, and it's just the circumstance. Like you want, you want Jimmy Hardy, you want Bobby Heenan. You let me know. It's just like uh, two good things. Put two good things together, they'll be great. Yeah. I do think it got to a point where it was overused and maybe a little hack and expected, but I miss it now. Like I miss that Hill manager having his Hill stable. That's a big hole I think in wrestling right now. Totally. So, in between house shows, Rick was mostly crushing jobbers and having small feuds with people like former Heenan family member, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. But the feud that put Rude on the map was his feud with Jake the Snake Roberts. By this point, the kinks had been worked out, and Rick Rude was doing all this cool Rick Rude stuff. He was roasting the crowd, he was wearing his custom airbrush tights, he was kissing women in the crowd... Kind of a teaser to this feud, Rick and Jake met at WrestleMania 4 as part of the tournament for the vacant WWF title. They wrestled to a time limit draw, Broadway, brother. 10-minute Broadway. (laughs) But it is a good match. It's Jake Roberts in his prime. It's Rick Rude in his prime. You do the math. Afterwards, they go their separate way until mid-88, the night that Rude and Bobby picked a random woman out of the crowd to kiss, which turned out to be Jake's real-life wife, 
Cheryl Roberts. Which uh, I think Jesse Ventura is the best call on that, where he's like, that character Patterson didn't pick her out, did he? Vince's like, I don't know anything about that. Come on, McMahon, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's you so, know that character, Patterson. It's so awkward and funny, and it's like Jesse's throwing a little inside information. You're like, oh, shit. What do you mean, McMahon? <laughs> now, kayfabe-wise, Rick didn't know it was Jake's wife when they picked her from the crowd, but he was about to find out. Cheryl rejects Rick and tells him she's not there to see the sexiest man alive, Rick Rude. She's there to see her husband, Jake the Snake. Yeah, I gotta give it up to Cheryl. Cheryl nails all the moments, all the looks. That's very solid. She's so damn good, man. Rick started calling Jake and her names. She slaps him. Rick eventually grabs her wrist, which brings out a very grumpy Jake Roberts from the back who attacks Rick. Who immediately gets thrown to the ground and kicked in the face. (laughs) So after Rick would keep beating job guys on TV while being more prolific about kissing women in the crowd, clearly to patch up his bruised ego about Cheryl. At a July 10th episode of WWF Challenge, Rick Rude appeared on the Brother Love Show and talked about Cheryl. (laughs) Is that that how he sounds? It's something like that. (laughs) I know. On August 7th, 88, Rick would be billy brown while wearing a very special pair of tights those tights would have cheryl roberts on his crotch which is pretty edgy for 88 <laughs> on that SummerSlam a week later rude wore tights with the face of his opponent junkyard dog but he had a surprise after being distracted by heenan rick knocks down junkyard dog climbs to the top rope and while on the turnbuckle he pulls down his jyd tights to reveal cheryl roberts Hits Junkyard Dog with that diving fist he always did, and then does some sweet, sweet Rick Rude hip stuff. Let me let me jump in here, cause I saw that where he pulled the pulled the tights down and then he jumped off. I was watching that and I was physically impressed <laughs> that he didn't fall off the top rope when pulling the tights down, and then how he landed, cause the tights were awkwardly around yeah, his knees. Yeah, not snap his I, ankle. I, I, exactly, I was perplexed like you thought that was a good idea like (laughs) it would have made more sense to do something to jyd keep him down pull the tights down and get them all the way off and then then go off the top and then climb to the top and then jump off but like that was ill-conceived uh jesse had another great line as soon as uh rude pulled this stuff off to reveal cheryl jesse was like cheryl's never looked better (laughs) (laughs) mcmahon mcmahon so by this time jake Flew out of the back. He starts welling on Rick and clotheslined him to the floor. But this gave Rick the DQ win and brought the feud to a whole nother level. About two weeks later, Rick had beat another guy and again revealed a second pair of tights with the airbrushed Cheryl Roberts. Jake hit the ring and not only attacked Rude, he yanked off his tights. The audience at home saw a black sensor bar. <laughs> the audience in the arena saw Rick in his underwear. It's just a fuzzy, weird little ball that follows his dingles around. <laughs> it's so bizarre. So, the conclusion to such an epic feud is so anticlimactic. Like, I'm sure they did a zillion dollars together at house shows, and that's probably that's what the more business important. was set up. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, probably yeah. more important. But there's no big blow-off, like you think, from this passionate almost blood feud especially between two guys who could talk and work their asses off could have been one of the most epic moments in wrestling history yeah uh, Pritchard talks about it when they do the Rick Rude episode like that that the pay-per-views deserve the big matches and he uses that because like Jake said the business was different but it's like of all the feuds that deserve a big pay-per-view blow-off this seems like the exact type of match you would want to do that with but Yeah, but know. if it's not Hogan or Andre right, in '88 right. or Savage at that time, because you're building mega powers, like that's, I'm sure in Vince McMahon's mind, he's like, oh, people can only pay attention to one big storyline on these pay per views and they're buying specifically for this. And anything else is going to muddle that or make things less special. I just want to put matches in, like, it's the house show business at this time. Yeah. The idea of pay per views, they only have one pay per view really a year until 88 when Jim Crockett promotion forces their hand yeah, right. basically in, in 87 to come up with Survivor Series and then early 88 in Royal Rumble. So the idea of like, oh, we're going to have these pay-per-views every year now and we're going to build to these storylines, that thought process wouldn't even be entered in their mind because the idea of having big shows that are pay-per-views just now popped into yeah, their head. Right. So. Uh, I would uh, just say to go on YouTube and just type in Jake Roberts and Rick Rude, because just 
there's so many of their little 30-second minute promos back and forth leading up to house show fights. I mean, there's some great promo stuff. Just there's so much gold. They pretty much wrap things up at 88 Survivor Series, which is a very weird card. There are only four matches on this entire show. The opener's about 18 minutes long. The second match is a 10-on-10 tag team match that lasts 42 minutes. It's brutal. I, I watched it on Thanksgiving this year, yeah. and it is brutal to watch that ta- that 10-man tag team match. It is yeah, they run out of spots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah it just, <laughs> it's like, forty-two minutes. Yeah, yeah they they run out of stuff to do. Uh, there's there's no need to ever see that match, ever. I promise yeah. you, you're not missing anything. Don't even like fast forward to the end. You think you're gonna see anything? No, don't even worry about it. Don't even, just move right along. I now have to watch this match. <laughs> no, and then the other two matches are right at thirty minutes. Four matches, two hour card. For Rude's match, the teams were Tim Bell, Pod's second episode ever, Dino Bravo with Andre the Giant, Harley Race, Rick Rude, and his best pal, Mr. Perfect, against Jake Roberts, Jim Duggan, Ken Patera, Scott Casey, and Cheeto Santana. Scott Casey was one. I was like, who? <laughs> who are you? Listen, Scott Casey was the main event anywhere in San Antonio, Texas. I promise <laughs> you, my friend. He was a big, but no, but seriously, Scott no, Casey. No, no, I believe you. Scott just... Casey, big deal in southwest championship wrestling mm-hmm. and um he was just one of those guys that was doing jobs doing preliminary stuff uh, up there and good they needed somebody he was a good hand no. I, I th- i'm pretty sure some i think pritchard even said like somebody didn't show up and yeah everybody always scratches their head by it but scott casey was a hell of a hand no i mean anytime i see someone like that i was like i don't know who the hell they are uh, but i always assumed that like they had to be badass in their territory to make this spot and actually i met scott casey at cauliflower alley and <laughs> he awesome. Some of the things he told me about making a comeback, uh, I still impart on my students today. And the first thing that I make my students do every single day is run their comeback because of the importance that Scott Casey put on as a babyface having a good comeback. So it is the first thing that I make my students do every single day is like you're doing your comeback right here right first thing before we do anything because it is that important. So it's the first thing we do at every training session. And it's all stemming from advice that I got from Scott Casey and talking about emotion and, and it, who, huh. who gives a shit about your fancy moves. I want to see you pissed off. Right, right, right. That's show what emotion, this is about. Yeah, and, and, he all, yeah. and Scott Casey also had a large hand in helping train Booker T and Stevie Ray. And Damn. I remember us doing a shoot interview with Stevie Ray. And when I brought up Scott Casey's name, Stevie Ray just lit up. <laughs> and he was just like, Scott Casey was amazing. <laughs> also, too, awesome. Scott Casey had a hand in training uh, Kenny King. You know, Ring of uh, Honor Superstar. Ring and, yeah, yeah. and once again, when I found out that Kenny King was trained by Scott Casey, I told him that I met Scott Casey at Cauliflower. Lit, face lit up immediately. So <laughs> Scott See, Casey's awesome, one of those guys. That's right, Mike. He put some goddamn respect on his name. Hey, I opened that up. <laughs> And I promise I can show you some footage from Southwest Championship Wrestling. It was a show. can't remember what it was. It was some sort of anniversary, but they had a big cake out there. And Scott Casey was out there, and I think he was wearing a hat for a car dealership <laughs> or a Budweiser hat. And it, Scott Casey, I don't know if I've seen anybody as cool as Scott Casey at the end of this Southwest Championship Wrestling episode. Like, he just looked like the coolest dude ever, <laughs> holding this cake. In the goofiest hat possible. Goofiest hat possible, because <laughs> it had, like, the, the gold leaf on the bill and stuff like that. Mustache was on point. He was jacked. Just this big baby face holding, a, like, a cake of some sort. I'm about to get something. laid 15 times tonight. <laughs> like, he just looked amazing. Looked like a, looked like a star. If you saw that... You would, there's no reason to be like, why is Scott Casey on a WWF pay per view in 1988? Like, no, he's a star. He's an awesome guy. Saru so gets an elimination by knocking out Ken Patera with a rude awakening, which by this time had long since been his famous neck breaker. Jake the Snake takes a beating this entire match, a lot of it at the hands of Rick, so continuation of the feud. Jake ends up the last man for his team and eventually gets a little revenge when he hits Rick with the DDT and eliminates them. Right after Andre chokes Jake until he's DQ'd, Mr. Perfect comes in, gets the easy win. Yeah, of all the stuff that I watched, it was like, oh, Jake finally got a clean pin on the heel, and it was just yeah. kind of in this shit show Survivor Series match and glossed over. Like, that's kind of the blow-off? <laughs> yeah. 
So after that, Jake would go on to feud with Andre, which we talked about in our Andre episode. Rick would wrap up 88 working house shows and crushing cans on tapings. Also in 88, Rick married his wife, Michelle, who he stayed with until his death. They had three children together. And once married, Rick was a devoted family man. Instead of taking off his ring for matches, he just put tape over it, which, yeah, that is sweet. My dad has never won his wedding. Why? Just he's a farmer. What's he gonna uh, do? Lose it? Uh. Yeah. So that's what that's what I think odd when I'd see like guys with rings. I'm like, why do they have a ring? Oh, that guy's married. And then everyone makes such a deal about like guys not wearing their wedding ring. I'm like, my dad has never worn his wedding ring. You know, you know what else my dad has never done? Stuck his dick in another fucking woman other than Susie Fearbach. So wow. there you go. Uh, it's getting weird over here. Just saying. So Rude's next big feud would be. With the Dingo Warrior, who had now taken enough steroids to become ultimate. No, he worked out two times a day. <laughs> Did I not fucking emphasize that enough, Nick? That is an ultimate workout. That is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Throughout this feud, every time Warrior did his press slam, I couldn't stop thinking about the Get your hands off my pussy from the Linda Vachon episode. Literally every press slam. I just was laughing on my couch. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to our Luna Vachon episode. Well, God bless Luna. And, and to give you a little insight on that Ultimate Warrior press slam, uh, <laughs> speaking with George South about it, he would tell you that it was the worst experience ever because <laughs> Ultimate Warrior, as everybody will attest, he's just he's just wild. He would hurt you just yeah, clotheslining you because he was yeah. stiff. Yeah, you know, because like I always tell students, if you have like a closed fist, it tightens up your forearm, and if you hit me with that, it's gonna hurt. Uh, but if you keep your your hand open as if you've got an egg in there and keep it loose, my muscles in the forearm will not be hard. So that way, you can hit me as hard as you can. That obviously with not a flexed forearm. That might have been the most impressive thing I've ever heard. You are pulling back the curtain too far, and I don't like it. Jesus Christ! Also, too, when you keep it loose like that and you swing it, you can get a smack off of it too. That's why you Uh, see all these Japanese guys. You get a smack because you're smacking because you're hitting the guy flesh on flesh. Fuck! We might need to take a a break so I can deal with this information. Doesn't George South's eight by ten that he signs for people? Isn't it him getting clotheslined by Ultimate Warrior? Yeah, and you see how stiff his forearm is. (laughs) And and you see George put his hands up to to protect himself. Like, some people do it for chair shots. He did it for (laughs) Ultimate Warrior clotheslines. But but for um, the press slam, George would say that was the worst. Because Warrior, who is strong enough to pick you up however he wants you, but how he picks you up for the press slam is he basically, because he's always jacked up, he's got a handful of your gurus and squeezing those. But yet you're not thinking about that pain because he has his hand around your throat <laughs> choking you as if he has massive daddy issues, which he may. And and, and just he's got a hold of your goos and he's squeezing those off and you're about ready to lose her because he's choking you. So for the right person, that could be like the <laughs> best the right person. You're like, exactly. So I need to then get into when, pro wrestling. So then when he finally just throws you around, not caring about your well-being <laughs> and how gravity is going to affect you, that is the most sweet, sweet Aww. release of your entire life. And that is the Ultimate Warrior Wrestling. <laughs> or autoerotic asphyxiation. God bless you, David Carradine. The feud between Rude and Warrior started when Warrior accepted a challenge for the Super Pose Down to see who has the best body in WWF. For real quick, I think uh, another great Jesse comment. He just he, Warrior does some stupid thing, and Jesse goes, "He's an idiot." <laughs> Pulling back the curtain again, Jesse. <laughs> straight to the point, Jesse. He's straight up an idiot. He's an idiot. He's just an idiot like somebody from Wisconsin. <laughs> so they. Trade words over some vignettes with Rick saying he was going to win the women's vote and Warrior saying incoherent gibberish. <laughs> I am here to win the ultimate vote! <laughs> you will not run over me with lawnmowers and you will not have the elephant will stamp my balls to pieces. The superposed down took place at the 89 Royal Rumble with me and Gene, rest in peace, hosting... Which, if I had to choose between the two, I'd rather look like Rick Rude. No, okay, my thing. Rude poses like a real professional. Like, he's in a bodybuilding competition. He's good. Ultimate Warrior poses like a little kid who got the Incredible Hulk fake muscles <laughs> costume for her Halloween. Yeah, go, come on, Chad. Give me your little pose. <laughs> yeah. Give me your little pose. <laughs> you got to shake more and your mouth has to open and you go... Rrr, rrr, rrr. 
The pose down included the double bicep pose, best abs, and Rick beating the shit out of Warrior with a metal workout bar. <laughs> they spray the baby oil in his face, and he doesn't sell it. He still goes, ah! <laughs> Oddly enough, I thought this was weird. I don't know if you know more about this. After the Rumble, they barely did any shows together. No house shows, no TV. Uh, the next time they would actually face each other would be for the Intercontinental title at WrestleMania Five. Wow. So from January to March or April, no interaction. But they didn't even do like TV hype-up promo stuff? I don't remember specifically, but... I mean, no, I'm sure they did that. But just actual matches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No contact where, you know, as opposed to today where they fucking have right. three matches on Raw and a hundred interactions and then they do like a lame TLC match. <laughs> okay. At WrestleMania 5, they were like, hey, remember, they're mad at each other. Rick came out with the Intercontinental title spray-painted on his tights, which is awesome. And the entire match is basically Rick selling like a god to Warriors, still at the time, very green moveset. To begin the match, Rude runs in and attempts to knee Warrior, and when he knees him, he knees his belt... And so then Rude, for the next 20 seconds, is selling his knee because he fucked up and <laughs> need him in the belt. And then he gets the crap beat out of him. When I was watching, I was like, why is he selling his knee? And I was like, oh, God, he's still wearing the belt. That's brilliant. And also, just because we have powers, Donald Trump is in the front row. Oh, he was. This was WrestleMania uh, uh, at Trump Plaza. At Trump Plaza. Yeah, because Donald Trump, because it's Trump Plaza. Because Trump Plaza's in the front row. Yeah, yeah. and Donald Trump's sitting in the front row. row. And he was also there at WrestleMania 4 as well, because it was at Trump Plaza. Donald Trump was there. I think we say Donald Trump enough, maybe something. I'm just saying, because every time we mention somebody's (laughs) name on a podcast... They face an untimely end. I, I, I wouldn't go in that direction. I, I, was, just, I, I, I was just. It has happened like ten times. On no, this no, no. Podcast. I don't know. What I was just talking about Donald Trump. Yeah. Who who is here at WrestleMania Five? Because <laughs> that Trump Plaza. It's true. Which really wasn't Trump Plaza, but he just named it Trump Plaza. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he but, wanted to lose all his money and go bankrupt with it. But that's what Donald Trump does, yeah. you know. And Donald I mean, Trump yeah. was working with the WWF, who he later became a member of the WWE Hall of Fame, Donald Trump. Who we are referring to on this podcast multiple times. So so anyway, Heenan held the leg down. Yes, the finish <laughs> was Warrior attempting to suplex Rick back into the ring. As he was standing on the apron, Bobby grabs Warrior's feet from underneath. And while Bobby held down Warrior's feet and Rick was falling on top of him, they hit the three count and Rick didn't need those airbrush tights anymore because he was going to leave Atlantic City with his first ever WWF belt. Right in front of Donald Trump. Damn straight, Donald Trump. We're going to go to prison for this. Um, what are you talking about? What, <laughs> what, are we, what, are, what are you referring to? I don't know, Nick. You're weird. So in wrestling, some guys will cut your throat to win a belt. Some guys don't give a shit about them. But Rick seemed real pumped to be holding a title. When whether it's a meaningless prop, it does mean that the company has some amount of faith in you. And I think Rick Rude appreciated the gesture. Also, too, it's like a sense of you kind of live forever. Right. And, that, yeah, and that's in the history all, books. Yeah, that's always been my thing about it is like when people look back on the lineage of, of a belt or I remember I was like so excited just to be on a DVD. I'm like, oh, this will I'm on something. People yeah. are going to see me. And when you look at the results of this show, because, you know, nobody's going to pay attention to this random show. But like since it's on a DVD, somebody will put a listing of it online and then they'll, and then you look that up and they'll know that I existed. And <laughs> That's kind of what we all want yeah. in all of our lives, whether we're professional wrestlers or not. So I existed. I did a thing. Over the next few months, Rick would successfully defend his title against the likes of Jim Nyhart, Hercules, and Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. <laughs> uh, Warrior would have a few run-ins with Rude and the Heenan family, usually getting the upper hand, setting up a future angle with Andre, and also setting up a rematch with Rick Rude at the 89 SummerSlam. It's another match of Rick Rude making Warrior look really good. Warrior mid-match hits Rude with his IC belt and doesn't get disqualified. Which Jesse points out should be a DQ. It It clearly should be a DQ. It's total bullshit. Clearly should be a DQ, McMahon. Uh, He even yells at Monsoon. Or no, Tony. You know, Tony, you're even dumber than Monsoon. (laughs) (laughs) The end of this match is dumb. Someone in the back was like, 
Well, we can't do a clean finish. What if we had Piper go down and show Rick Rude his ass? So Piper goes down to the ring and shows Rick Rude his ass. And Rick Rude climbs up on the turnbuckle and was like, hey, man, don't show me your ass. Yeah, I don't like that, man. And this allows Warrior to hop up, give Rick a belly-to-back suplex, shoulder tackle, press slam, big splash, and regain the Intercontinental Championship. Well, was he just doing uh, like a William Wallace like Braveheart thing? <laughs> wow. You know, beforehand, you wow, know, he's yeah. showing himself. Yeah. Showing the deal. I think I think that's what Piper was doing. That makes P- Piper clairvoyant, <laughs> in a sense. The, the SummerSlam match is fucking good. Like, the drama's good. And this is another example. Rude could sell an atomic drop like the best young little kid that had to pee so bad. <laughs> that, kinda... that atomic drop sell oh, is man. legendary in wrestling locker rooms. <laughs> yeah. And is referred to, I'm going to do the Rick Rude sell. And with me being <laughs> a hairier individual and now that i'm a little more jacked than i used to be with a mustache when i do atomic drops i just i was like I, in my mind i'm envisioning that i'm doing the best rick rude walking around selling that it's so good and, and it fits with his gimmick to hit what's he built as like a sex god in the crotch you yeah, know, yeah essentially yeah. he has to sell it that way it's like yeah it's such a prized possession he has the, he has the weakest penis <laughs> So, Rude would feud with Piper over his butt stuff. Uh, the, they immediately hopped into house shows together. Uh, and their first big meeting being at 89 Survivor Series, where uh, the Rude Brood would face Rowdy's Roddies. Piper and Rude would fight outside the ring, leading to a double countout. And after a perfect plex to Jimmy Snuka, the Rude Brood would actually get the win. After that, Rick and Roddy would keep working house shows with Piper dominating the feud. They'd have a ton of still cage matches, which uh, I think one eventually made it to TV. And if you're playing along at home, it's Rude and Piper. Go watch it. Don't be dumb. We need to talk about the primetime wrestling show where it's nothing but them in the studio going back and forth. It's basically, uh, it's primetime wrestling. It's Monsoon and uh, Heenan type stuff. Piper takes over for Heenan, and then in Studio B is Rick Rude and Bobby Heenan. And for the entire two hours, they have a back-and-forth feud. There's a 30-minute clip on YouTube. Look it up. Just look up uh, Rude and Piper. It is pure gold. Um, Piper, I mean, as good as Rude is, Piper had just got off his movie run with They Live and John Carpenter and everything. And Piper's clearly boning up on his acting because he has some of the most, like, slowly build-up to enraging intense moments it's good storytelling rude gets crazy at the end there's a big confrontation it's 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 um just primetime wrestling rude piper look it up it's so fucking good so at wrestlemania 6 rick would beat jimmy snooka in a very short match which we discussed on snooka part one also at wrestlemania 6 ultimate warrior would beat hulk hogan for the wwf title and after an injury rick would make a comeback to face ultimate warrior for that very title so rick cut his hair he bulked up he was all business they start showing vignettes of rick training he's boxing with bobby he's hitting the speed bag and we talked about his legendary grip strength he climbed a fucking rope to the ceiling using just his hands no feet just just his straight forearm strength Hop back down and then cut a promo. It is it is nuts. Rick would come back to face Warrior in a steel cage as the main event at SummerSlam. While they're building the cage, they give like the entire mm. roster a promo. And Rick's has an, some accidental comedy in it. Rick is talking about how they're in the spectrum, and this is the same building Rocky faced Apollo, but this is reality. And as soon as he says reality, they switch cameras. So he has to turn and look at the other camera to show that it's clearly not reality. It is TV. A good fun fact. um, The blue cage that they always wrestled was over 3,000 pounds, which if Nick's mom goes on a diet, she might get to one day. Oh, you thought I forgot? It's six episodes later, but I didn't forget. Yeah, how's it feel, Nick? Uh, not good. <laughs> I, think oh. they, I think they call that a receipt. Yeah, that, that's definitely a receipt right there. Uh, why don't you just make him set up one of those blue cages? That'd be punishment enough. Because our ring guy was ordered to make a cage similar to that. Oh, like wow. The old, really? Like the old, the old blue cage, but he had strict orders, make it as light as possible, which he did, and it's still heavy as shit. So <laughs> don't. Yeah, it's it, so much. In fact, we were supposed we were going to do a cage match at WrestleCon last year, 
and we were going to do the old blue cage style, oh, but it was yeah, going to be light to kill. carry. But kill. as soon as we got the test run and how heavy it was, we go, no, we're not fucking <laughs> taking this thing anywhere at all. Yeah. So. so this match, cage match between Rick and Warrior, is probably my favorite match of Warriors ever, and but definitely between the two. Both get busted open. Rick looked good. There's some good back and forth. Warrior selling had improved by like a billion at this point. Rick hits Warrior with a rude awakening about three-fourths of the way through the match, but instead of walking out the door, he climbs up to the top of the cage and hits him with a diving fist. Then instead of going out of the door, he does it again. This time, Warrior catches him. Eventually, Warrior hits him with a military press, climbs out, and keeps his belt. The promos leading up to this, Warrior showed a little uh, personality, and I just want to tell a joke by the Ultimate Warrior, if you guys are ready. Do you know what Rick Rude and Bobby Heenan have in common with the Liberty Bell? What does... what? One is cracked, and the other is a ding-dong. So, there we go, Ultimate Warrior comedy. It's 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 pretty fucking funny. Uh, New Jax was better. <laughs> <laughs> it falls somewhere into where that time that The Rock did a set at the improv. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I that, was, that was like, what, five years ago? Yeah, yeah. That and then, like, obviously not as much as New Jack. I was thinking Dolph Ziggler at the store. Yeah, so somewhere <laughs> in between. Maybe it, it's a little bit closer to Raven when he did comedy. Wow, I forgot all and this. And then also, too, like Mike Sanders did comedy for a short period of time in Atlanta. So I don't know. It's somewhere in that. So Rick's next feud was with the Big Boss Man as part of this, the whole Heenan family making fun of Big Boss Man's mom angle. Rick was supposed to be part of Survivor Series with Earthquake Barbarian and Goodfella Dino Bravo, but he was replaced with Haku after being suspended by Jack Tunney. Tunney suspended him for making fun of Postman's mom, which is so lazy. <laughs> uh, hey, you can't call his mom names, but you can kill each other in a steel cage. Uh, the whole thing's dumb, but they had to cover their bases somehow because in reality, Rick was upset about his pay and left the WWF. And I think this is the big money dispute where he was hurt, but Vince was still advertising him. And he was mad that like, hey, you're using my name to make money, but I'm not getting more money. Real quick before we wrap up, in July of 91, Rick did his first work in Japan, wrestling for All Japan Pro Wrestling. He then went back to Crockett, which by now, old Teddy had bought, and it was WCW. That is where we will pick up on Ravishing Rick Rude Part too. I would just like to close out uh, one of the great post-matches on when he beats Hiroshi Hase. I don't know. Uh, all Japan. Uh, his closing line is Japan, you ain't shit. Get out of here. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> yep. Strong words from a strong man. <laughs> so anything before we wrap up? Like I said, like seeing him progress so fast in Memphis, like it's, it's very startling and then just a few years later, like, I mean, it, it, uh, let's be honest. In 84, he was dog shit. The beginning of 84, he was dog shit. By the end of it, he was a really good wrestler. And mm-hmm. then eight years later, he's having one of the hottest feuds in one of the biggest companies right. in the world. And that's and that that turnaround, we talk about me- meteoric rises and stuff like that. For that time, in four years, things all of a sudden just clicking out of nowhere like that, I think that should be applauded. He was ready at the right time and the right moment and just took every opportunity he could. Jumping from Crockett to WWF when he did, uh, good call. Kind of like to piggyback on what Jake said. Uh, anytime you see an artist where they are shit, uh, like Jake talked about his work in Vancouver and the early Memphis stuff, he looks like crap. I've read books about when like Scorsese and Spielberg thought they were complete crap. And it's always good to see an artist that you think is great and that has evolved into something you aspire to be and just wows you. And to see them when they were clueless and didn't know what the fuck they were doing, it is inspiring as hell. And I would just like to say the early WWF stuff, the memories of watching wrestling early with my mom and her reacting to Rick Rude's what I'd like to have right now moments and her being basically the woman in the crowd. like, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? Just my mom's reactions to that and uh, my love for the Ultimate Warrior when I was a kid was heavily influenced and Rick Rude was huge to me at the beginning with me and my mom and getting used to stuff. So pretty awesome. Well, I am currently in the uh, stage of my career where I think I'm shit and I can't wait to turn that corner. (laughs) 
So on episode two of Rick Rude, we're going to get into his WCW run. And if you only know him from his WWF stuff, man, his WCW work is so damn good. And if you're not familiar with it, take a look before we cover it in two weeks. I guess we will wrap up. If you like what we do, head over to our Patreon if you want to help us out. We're 10 Bell Pod on all the social medias, 10bellpod.com. I'm Nicolessa on all the social medias. Trotter 27 on Twitter is Micah. Mm-hmm. And Jake is the Man Scout Manning. Well, just Man Scout Manning. Yes. <laughs> just Man Scout yeah, Manning. Yeah, yeah. No, the social- I got in early. I got in early. There's no reason to have the Man Scout Manning, just Man Scout Manning. I'm going to change mine to the real Man Scout Manning. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I like that. Or just the real one. <laughs> oh, wait, that's already taken. All right, anything? What are we doing? How are we ending this? Uh, good enough. <laughs>